lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. Charitable gift of a remainder interest in homes and farms. Uh, so we go back to the general principle. The general principle we start with is that you're not allowed to deduct a retained interest or partial interest gift. That's the general concept that we start with. Um, and we, uh, going back, we have this idea that a partial interest gift occurs. Uh, you might think of it as a retained interest gift, although tax code uses the language partial interest. Uh, is when we have uh, a piece of property and we uh, want to give some property rights to the charity, but we want to keep some property rights at the same time. And the general rule is you can do that, but you get no deduction if you do that, uh, no deduction for a partial interest gift. However, one of the exceptions to that is that you can deduct a remainder interest in a home or farm. It's one of the four blocks of exceptions we'll look at uh, the other being giving an all or an undivided portion of a property interest uh, or charitable remainder lead trust pooled income funds. We'll look at that later and qualified conservation easements. Okay, so just again as a reminder, remainder interest gives the right for the person who holds it to own the property either after a set period of time or after the death of a person. And in most all circumstances that we're working with, we're probably going to be looking at the property transferring after the death of a person, usually after the death of the donor. That's the most typical. Although it is possible to set these up for a period of years or to set them up where it transfers after somebody else's life or a combination of lives. Uh, again, just as a reminder, unlike a will, the remainder interests are not revocable and they can even be sold because uh, once you've given it, it's a property right, the charity can uh, wait until it matures or just sell it to somebody else. Uh, and again, this is just a review. Uh, the deductible remainder interest in farmland or a home must be transferred by deed, not by trust or contract. Now, there was a very small exception to this in a particular case where a court uh, did allow a transfer by trust, but that was only because in that particular jurisdiction, the, uh, the, the charity actually had a right to take physical possession of the property uh, rather than just simply getting the money from it. And the court said because of that local jurisdiction law, uh, it's the same thing as a transfer by deed. Uh, it's a very small exception, and I would suggest just follow the rule of use a deed for this kind of thing. Uh, and again, a farmland, what is farmland? It's any land or improvements used even by a tenant to raise crops or livestock. And uh, as, as with last week, we know that we can cut up any specific piece of that farmland, and we can give that. It doesn't have to be the entire farm. Uh, what's new for this week is this question that came up last week, which is, can I give a remainder interest in an undivided share of farmland? In other words, instead of breaking up my farm into little 10 or 15 or 20 acre tracks, can I simply give a charity a remainder interest in 5% of my farm, an undivided 5% interest, uh, which looks like a, uh, what's called a tenancy in common. Tenancy in common simply means we own it jointly, but there is no right of survivorship if one person or one entity dies. And the answer is yes. Uh, the donor may deduct a remainder interest shared by a charity and others as tenants in common. Now, this particular revenue rule set it up under a 
situation where what the donor did was they had a, a piece of farmland and they gave a remainder interest, say 20% to a charity, and the remaining 80% remainder interest went to the donor's children. Okay, so that was the particular scenario in this revenue ruling. But the suggestion here is because they permitted that, uh, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't uh, permit, uh, permit it if a donor decided to, for example, retain the rest of the interests because giving to one's kids or retaining for themselves is pretty much going to be perceived the same way. Uh, so this, uh, I would suggest, stands for the principle that, uh, yes, you can deduct a remainder interest uh, shared by a charity and others as tenants in common, which means you could simply give a remainder interest in 10% of the entire farm rather than breaking off, say, 10, 15, or 100 acres. Yeah. So with that, um, for the charity to get, to get at any of the money mm -hmm. or, the, well, the value of the asset, are they, uh, how, would the, how would you go about doing that? Okay, so the question. Right, so the question is okay, so a charity's got a 10% undivided interest in a farm. How do they turn that into cash? Well, to begin with, of course, they don't have uh, a 10% ownership interest in the farm because that doesn't mature until, uh, until the end of the period or until the donor dies. Okay, but once the donor dies, now the charity is, has a 10% uh, remainder, in uh, not remainder, they would actually have a 10% ownership interest in tenants in common. So how do they go about this, uh, this process of turning that into cash? Well, uh, one of the ways they can turn it into cash is they can uh, force a partitioning. Now, that can happen in one of two ways. One, you force a sale because any one of the uh, owners can force a sale. You force a sale of the property and, um, and then you get your 10% share, whatever it is, when the cash proceeds come out. The other alternative is if you force a sale and the other parties say, no, no, we don't want to sale, we actually want to divide up the land equally, you can go through a court process to actually divide up and give a chunk that's worth 10%, and then you have a piece of land, and then you go out and sell that piece of land. Now, that tends to be more rare. Uh, usually what happens is uh, you just have one, uh, one party forces a sale, you make the sale, and then you get 10%. Uh, now, knowing that they have this right, if the other family members, for example, wanted to, they might just purchase the right from the charity uh, for, uh, um, for uh, its fair market value and not go through that process. Well, it really seems like it would be easier or less complicated to do it the other way. Because, I mean, that, that seems like a big mess. Well, so, so the... Uh, so the idea that it, would, it could be easier to do it the other way where we just separate out a piece of land, it depends on the family situation. If you have a family where none of the kids are interested in farming, you know they're going to sell it as soon as, as, soon as they're, they're gone anyway, then it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really uh, cause, too, cause too many problems uh, if you know it's going to be sold regardless. Uh, but if you do have a situation where uh, you know it's going to stay uh, in the family, they're going to continue to operate it, then, yeah, you probably would want to go with a situation where if you do make this kind of a gift, which may not be as desirable of a gift if, in fact, you're wanting to keep it together and, and, uh, and keep the family uh, in it, then you would want to cut off a particular piece of the property rather than giving them a 10% interest in the, in the whole property. Two questions. The first one is, can the charity still sell the divided interest? Yes. Okay. 
And the second is, does the IRS value, is there a valuation that's higher in one versus the other or? Well, here's what we know so far. There was a case where the IRS said uh, that they were going to deduct the cost of partitioning. In other words, IRS says, well, look, you've got a 10% interest. We're not going to give you the full 10% value because we know that in order to get that value, uh, if you had to, you would have to force a partitioning. There's court costs involved with that. There's sale costs involved with that. So we're going to discount it uh, that way. Now, some, some of the, the uh, commentators have suggested that because, let's say you give a minority interest, that they've suggested, well, in the same way that we will reduce the value of a minority interest in other contexts, like estate planning contexts, where you, know, you, you give something to a, a child, but it's a minority interest, so we say it's not worth the full 12.5% because they can't control the organization or whatever. Some commentators have said, be, be on the watch out because the IRS might come in and say, well, because that's a minority interest, we're going to uh, reduce its value to not 12.5%, but say 8% or something like that. Now, my opinion is that that's incorrect. And the reason that we haven't seen that is the, and the reason why I think the IRS will not do that is because with this kind of ownership interest, you can force a sale. Uh, if I have 12% stock in a company, I can't go to the company and say, liquidate, I want my cash. If I have a 12% interest as a tenant in common in real estate, I can force a partition. I can force a division. I can force them to either sell or, uh, in rare cases, uh, to, to give me an actual chunk of land that's worth 12.5%. So I think what the IRS has done before, which is to say we're going to subtract the cost of partitioning process from the value, is what they're likely to do in the future. So I don't see what some commentators have suggested, which is uh, this uh, minority interest discount because you can, force a, you can force a sale, which you can't do with other business entity min minority uh, ownerships. So, yeah. Why is that? Why is what? Why, why can't you force a sale if you're a minority interest in land? Uh, that's just the nature of the property right. It um, it's just the way it works, yeah. The way it's worked for centuries. Tenants in common, you get that. Um, that's one of the rights that you have, is the, is the right to either force a sale and take part of the, the, uh, the cash or to force an actual physical division of, of the property. I was involved with the litigation once where it was a, an inheritance situation. The, the children, I think there were three children involved, had um, inherited as uh, tenants in common. And uh, you had really just a long family fight. And this litigation was part of it because you had one family member who had been on the farm for years had uh, improved the farm, then even after death was making improvements to the farm, didn't want the farm to be sold. Uh, the other uh, uh, children said, we don't want to deal with this, let's force a sale. And so uh, the response was, well, we're not going to have a sale, we're going to actually partition it, divide it. Um, in part, it was really a, pro a way just to slow down the process. And really, it was kind of like a, um, it was kind of like a divorce where you get to a place that people just want to spend money to make the other side spend money to make things slow down, and that's kind of what was happening here. Um, my client at the time was um, was certifiably insane, so that that didn't really help. <laughs> One of the reasons that I don't do litigation anymore. He was he was paranoid, not like ha ha, you're paranoid, sort of funny, but kind of like that. 
this is a serious mental illness and I don't want to be in the same room with you kind of paranoia. So um, anyway, estate planning is really cool compared to litigation because I don't have to deal with people like that anymore. Anyway, um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, so uh, this can be done. Uh, and we do have a, a revenue ruling that suggests IRS isn't going to have a problem if you make transfers uh, in this fashion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I had a question while we're on the subject of this, like, transactions. Yes. Uh, we, we said earlier that it has to be done by deed. Is yes. That, is that a similar process where you just go to, like, through a legal process and you file a new deed? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, for example, instead of filing a deed that says I transfer uh, a remainder interest in, you know, describing the property uh, and retain for myself a life estate uh, uh, for the duration of my life, uh, you would say, I, you know, I'm transferring a, uh, uh, a, a 10% remainder interest as tenants in common with who you want it to go to um, other than, you know, at, at your death, essentially. Um, and so it would just change the language slightly. But it is an actual deed. It's recorded in the Recorder of Deeds office. It becomes part of the chain of title. Okay? And, in fact, then you need to file the death certificate in the chain of title uh, before the next person then has their full ownership. Okay? All right. Uh, mineral rights. We had a lot of questions on mineral rights. So I did a lot of research on mineral rights over the last uh, week or so. Uh, so, so here's some different scenarios to think about how does this work with mineral rights. Okay, so first thing we know for sure is that there is no deduction for remainder just in mineral rights, right? You can't do a charitable uh, remainder uh, interest deduction just in mineral rights because it's not a farm. The mineral rights by themselves don't qualify as a farm. You don't use uh, the uh, mineral rights to raise agricultural crops or um, uh, animals, that sort of thing. The other thing we know is that you could certainly gift a remainder in the entire farm. And if you own all the rights to the farm, including the mineral rights, it's a, it's a fee simple. That's the legal term for I own everything. Okay? You certainly can transfer land that included the mineral rights and deduct the value of the, uh, the farmland as a charitable gift. Uh, now, you could actually do this even if you wanted to send these to separate charities. If you wanted to say, uh, I am giving the land to charity X and I'm giving the mineral rights to charity Y. Okay? You could divide them like that if you want to. The other thing that you can do is you can gift a remainder in a farm without mineral rights if you don't own the mineral rights. Okay? So this is the idea that uh, if you've got a farm and, you know, years ago, mineral rights were sold off to Exxon or whoever, uh, and, and you've never owned them, you just bought it and used it as a farm, can you make a, a gift uh, of, those, uh, of that farm as a remainder interest? And the answer is yes. Okay. So these things we know uh, definitely uh, to be the case. Now, what about the situation of uh, if you say, I want to gift a farm and keep the mineral rights. Okay, Here's what we definitely know about that. We definitely know that if you're making a direct gift of that farm, okay, not a remainder interest, just, just a regular, hey Charity, here's my farm, it's you, yours now, and you're keeping the mineral rights, you get no deduction for that. Okay, And we'll, we'll uh, go over that in, in the context of parcel interest gifts, uh, gifts in a minute. So we know certainly that you will not get a deduction for a direct gift of that. 
My estimation is that you will not get a deduction if you do the same thing using the uh, remainder interest uh, approach. Uh, now, that is my own estimation. We do not have a specific case on point. You could make an argument that says the definition of farm is used to raise agricultural uh, uh, crops, and so we could do this separation and still fit under this exception because it is an exception to the rule. Uh, but I would say that most definitely the safest approach is to say you can't do the process where you're keeping the mineral rights yourself and giving away a remainder interest only in the farmland. Okay, because we know you can't do it without the remainder interest and, and there's no uh, evidence, uh, no cases on point to suggest that you can do it through using remainder interest. What if they gifted the mineral rights to a child and then donated? So the question is, well, what if they gift the mineral rights to a child and then donate it? And here's where we get into an area that it's a little tricky to give a hard and fast rule, and here's the reason why. If the IRS or the court, tax court perceives that you're monkeying around with things to try to get around the rule that says you can't keep it yourself and then give it away, uh, then essentially what they'll do is, uh, is, is, is ignore the transaction and, uh, and they'll say, no, we're going to treat this as if you're retaining the rights. Because they know that if they accepted that transaction, you could in most families, turn around as soon as you got your deduction, maybe wait for the three years uh, to elapse after you filed your tax return, you know, go back to the kid and say, sign this and give me those things back. You know, otherwise I'm cutting you out of the will and you're, <laughs> you know, you're going to be hurting. So because, because of that, um, that propensity that, of course, the court and the IRS knows about, it starts getting dangerous when... Uh, when you own the rights and then you set them over here and then you make this gift and then because there's this potential you can just come back here and get them. And so if there's this perception that, that's, that what is being done is being done as a way to get around the rule, um, then it won't be deductible. So, so that's why it's a little bit squishy. Now, you know, uh, and so if I wanted to write this in a way where I was absolutely 100% confident, I'd say you can gift a remainder farm without mineral rights if you never owned them. That I'm 100% confident in. Uh, if you don't own them well, you could have done this thing where you put the rights over here and then gifted them, in, and then you would have the ability to take the rights back uh, sort of uh, in, a, uh, in a family context. That could be risky, and the deduction may be disallowed. Okay. I don't like you messing around with them. <laughs> Okay. Now, last week, um, I skipped over the part about how do we value a deduction for a home. And it sort of bothered me during the week because, I mean, this is a graduate level class. And so we probably ought to know how to do that. So we're going to talk about that this, this week. But first, let's start with the simple case. The simple case is how do we value this deduction? It's a deduction for remainder interest in farmland. And I've simplified it to basically two steps, right? How we value the deduction is we start with the interest rate. Got to find the 75-20 rate uh, or AFR if you like to call it that. Comes out every month. It's published. There's a nice website that publishes it. Then we multiply the value of the land by the remainder percentage in this publication. You got to have that interest rate to know which part of that publication to look at. 
So how do you actually do this? What does it actually look like? Uh, well, if you were to click on that uh, HTML link, then you get something that looks like this. I know we have at least one person that actually likes to see what these IRS things look like. So this is what it looks like if you were to click on it. And you come down here, and this is too small for you to see, but you know you can pull down the slide and look at it. This is the month. It says September 2010, and here's the interest rate, which is 2.4%. You can actually use the current month or any or either of the two previous months, uh, so you don't have to worry about you know trying to uh, to hit it just right on the right date and oh what's it going to be next month. Uh, so you do have some leeway on which interest rate you want to choose there. So you find the interest rate. Currently, this interest rate uh, is at 2.4%, uh, and so we'll, we'll pick that one because it's the lowest one. It just came out. It's not, on the, it's not on the website yet, but October's interest rate is going to be 2.0%. That's the lowest ever in the history of these 7520 rates, and uh, it does some really crazy things that we'll look at to some of these valuations. We'll, we'll look at the effect of that here in just a minute. So after you find your interest rate, then what do you do? Well, then you go to this website, you download what's at that website is the Excel spreadsheet. And because uh, what you have to do at this website is decide, do I want the value for one life or two lives or for a specific term? In other words, am I giving a remainder interest to the charity that will take effect after one person dies, after two people die, like with a married couple, or after a specific number of years? Because you pull up a different table depending on which kind of thing you have. Uh, in this case, we pull up table S, which is based upon one life. Uh, we're dealing with a, uh, a remainder interest in $100,000 of farmland given by a 59-year-old donor uh, and uh, uh, given just a couple of weeks ago. And so when you pull up that table in Excel, then you have to flip down to find the table that says 2.4% because that's our current interest rate. You then go down to uh, the age, and I'm saying this because you'll have to do this, um, to uh, value your remainder interest for the assignment. And then you come over here to the remainder, and here it says uh, 0.60589, and you simply multiply the value of the, the, the farmland by that number, the 0.60589. Okay? So that's how you do farmland. Pretty straightforward. You find your interest rate. How do you find that? You click on that link, pick the right month. It tells you the interest rate month of the gift or the two previous months. You can take your pick. Then you click on this, decide whether you want the table for one life, two lives, or a specific term. Click on that. It brings down an Excel spreadsheet, and you roll down until you get your interest rate that is of interest. Find your age. Come over here to your remainder. Multiply that times the value of the, uh, of the farmland. And that's how you get the remainder uh, value of the uh, uh, the the, uh, the value of the uh, of the remainder interest, which is your charitable deduction. Anybody questions on this, or want me to go through that again? Yeah. How far does the remainder table go age-wise? Like, is there a certain point? Did we? Um, I don't know. I, I think it goes beyond any point that any like I don't know, 120 or something like that. Um, the remainder interest would be. Uh, very valuable for somebody uh, at 120 years of age. But uh, I don't have the Excel uh, spreadsheet, but you click on that website and you can pull it down and see how far it goes. Okay? okay no questions? Because it's going to get more complicated because we're going to do houses. Okay. All right. So, so this hopefully is the straightforward part. 
find that remainder number, multiply it times the value. Okay. Something to keep in mind, especially right now, especially why this particular uh, kind of um, charitable planning is so valuable right now. And it wasn't necessarily all that valuable um, some years ago. And that is because there is an inverse relationship between interest rates and the charitable deduction that you get uh, for a remainder interest. Now, of course, if you think of time value of money, that makes sense because a remainder interest is simply uh, money that I have to wait to get. Okay? So if I'm going to have to wait, let's say, 20 years to get a set amount of money, uh, then uh, I uh, will, uh, uh, will uh, be uh, less interested in waiting that 20 years to get a set amount of money if the interest rates are very high because I could do other things with that money. Uh, whereas right now, we, you know, as I mentioned, October uh, uh, 7520 rates are the lowest ever in history, so it makes a dramatic difference in the valuation of these remainder interests. Even with the same value of farm, it's the interest rate that is making the percentages dramatically different. Let me give you an example. Here's an example of our case that we looked at. $100,000 farm or piece of a farm by an age 59 donor. This same gift, identical gift, identical age, uh, identical dollar value. If you were to have made a remainder interest gift in May of 1989, you would get a charitable deduction of $15,684. You make an identical gift uh, today or uh, using the October rate, you get 65553 as a deduction. So it's a reason why, you know, maybe uh, late 80s, even early 90s, the, these techniques were, you know, it's okay. But now we're talking about the exact same scenario, the exact same technique, except it's giving you more than four times more uh, return, more deduction, more money back than it did in a different interest rate environment. So... Something to keep in mind. Okay, uh, it, it is particularly valuable uh, right now. Now, after all the money printing we're doing catches up with this, and the interest rates are back to twelve percent, then it will be less valuable. But that's that's a different issue. Okay. So here we have the uh, the first uh, comparison, which you may want to use for your examples. And we looked at this last week. Leaving land to charity by will, it is revocable. By remainder, interest is irrevocable. That's a big difference. This you can change your mind. This is permanent. Okay? Uh, zero uh, dollars of income tax deduction, uh, over $60,000 of income tax deduction, uh, or if you use next month's rate, over $65,000 of income tax deduction. So this deal just got 5% uh, better um, within the last couple of weeks. Um, Impacts charity after death. This can impact the charity after death, or it can impact immediately if the charity decides to sell the remainder interest. Yes? I have a question. Say yes. you have this really valuable farm, but you have a really low AGI, and that $60,000 is going to carry over for more than five years. Mm -hmm. would, you, would you just partition it and, and give them a percentage every year? Or? Yeah, uh, that would be one of the suggestions we talked about last time, which is doing exactly that. Uh, because farmland can be gifted in parts, and we know now you can either cut it up physically or you can just say, okay, this year I'm giving you a 10% interest, next year I'll give you an 8% interest the following year. I'll, you know, I can wait and see what my taxes are. 
you know, I can figure it up and, or get close to the end of the year uh, and say, okay, I think this year I'm going to be making about this much so I can use this much deduction and I can write that percentage. I can get a valuation on the farmland and write exactly that percentage that gives me exactly the deduction that I want. And I can do this each year so that, you know, I give 8.2%, then I give another 6.9%, and I just keep giving this in chunks so that I don't run into that problem with uh, either uh, too much carryover. You know, maybe I don't even want to carry, carry it over even one year because if I get into carryover, then I have two issues. Uh, one, of course, is what you pointed out. I might have so much I can't use it. The other is the issue that if I die holding that carryover, I can't use it. And so, um, uh, so there, this is the idea that, uh, that we want to break it up. The other reason that we might want to break it up is because if the farmland gets more valuable, uh, then uh, we could give a smaller percentage of it uh, for the same deduction or get a larger deduction for the same percentage of it uh, each year. So it would be a suggestion that, yes, that's, a, that's a, certainly a, a gifting strategy that you could use uh, with this. Now... Of course, the interest rates can change, and that will also change the percentage of the farm that you would need to give away in order to hit your uh, tax deduction goal, um, but those are things you could take into account each, each year. Now, of course, if you think the interest rates are going to go up, then certainly you could say, well, I'm going to make the gift now so I can lock in this low interest rate that gives me the high, uh, the high deduction, and then I'll just carry it over. But if you aren't into predicting interest rates, then... Um, you know, I, I would suggest that I'm pretty confident that this uh, interest rate will not drop more than 2%. So I don't think it's going to go down. That's a joke, by the way. Sorry, 2% is here. Anyway, um, so because uh, uh, then the valuations get really complicated if you have 0% interest rate. Um, and then finally, there's this. Uh, you could use the annual deductions to pay for irrevocable life insurance trust life insurance passing tax-free to the heirs. Let's talk about that concept for a minute, okay? Uh, we just sort of uh, mentioned it briefly last time, um, but here's the basic idea. The idea is you make one of these remainder interest transfers to charity, and what do you get? You get some cash back from the IRS, right? You get this deduction that says you don't have to pay uh, taxes on, on uh, this other money that you've earned, okay? And the idea is to take that cash back that you get from the IRS and to then go out and buy a life insurance policy within an irrevocable life insurance trust for the children's inheritance. Now, the key point of this, this is not an estate planning class, so we don't have to get into the particulars of an irrevocable life insurance trust, and you don't need to get into particulars of that in your presentation necessarily, because that's not what this class is about. But the bottom line, the thing that's important to know is that this life insurance that you buy through this process passes without any estate taxes to the kids. The farm or home that you uh, gave a remainder interest in, when it goes to the kids, it gets taxed if you have large enough assets to have an estate tax. This insurance that you buy, when it goes to the kids, it does not get taxed through the Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust. So let me give you an example of how that could be uh, interesting. And I've got to use some numbers on this one uh, to, to make a comparison. I want to compare two different examples. We've got our same 59-year-old wealthy donor now, uh, and uh, we're giving a uh, $100,000 of farmland. Now, I'm going to make him wealthy in your example. In my example, I've said he's, he's going to be worth, your example, I said $10 million. He's at the top 
uh, federal tax rate, assuming tax rates are what we now currently are looking at in January 1st, uh, which means if you are at that, uh, if you're over $3 million, you're paying 55% estate tax rate. Okay. So let's look at scenario one. You've got a charitable donor, uh, a, a charitable client, and they say, well, I want to leave some to the charity, so I'm going to divide my farmland. It's not my only asset. I have other assets, but I'm going to divide my farmland uh, so that 10% goes to charity and 90% goes to the children. Okay. What's the outcome of that? Well, the charity, uh, let's say the farmland is worth $125,000 by the time he dies. Remember, he's starting with it worth $100,000, but we'll assume it grows uh, over however many years until he has a heart attack or gets hit by a truck or whatever, and uh, the uh, farmland is then worth $125,000. Okay. So what's the charity get? The charity gets $12,500, right, because they get 10%. What do the kids get? The kids get 50625 Well, why do they only get that? Because what they would have gotten, which is this $112,500, 90% of this value, more than half of that's taken by the IRS through estate taxes. Okay, so they get more than half of that taken, so they're only left with this amount. That's what we do if we don't do any planning. We just do the straight, okay, let's give a little bit to charity, a little bit to the kids. Now let's take the other scenario, which is we take a remainder interest in the whole farmland, the $100,000, and we give it to charity. What does that do? That generates a tax deduction, uh, a uh, see 60589 and I think that's using our uh, numbers back from, from this scenario. Um, and, of course, that would actually be a larger number if we used uh, next month's number. So I have this tax deduction. Uh, for this scenario, I'm going to assume he's at a top federal tax rate, and I'm going to assume a 6% state uh, tax rate. Now, Texas doesn't have that, but most states do, so I'm just throwing that in to sort of give you an extreme example. So if he's at a 41% marginal tax rate, that means that the fact that he doesn't have to pay income on this 60589 because of this tax deduction, that means it's essentially the equivalent of $24,841 cash back from the IRS. Okay, that's money out of his pocket that he does not have to pay because of that deduction. It's complete cash equivalent. Now, the idea is you take this money and you buy life insurance through an irrevocable life insurance trust with it. Now, just to give it a ballpark, and any of you all that have time that want to see if there's places to give better estimates, I assume he's going to buy about $70,000 of paid-up life insurance uh, at age, uh, at age uh, 59. Now, if you find that that estimation is a little bit higher, a little bit low, please let me know, giving you some, some ballpark there. So the idea would be that that $70,000 of life insurance, then the kids might say, well, look, that's not as much as you know, 90% of the whole farm, that, which is $112,500, right? Well, no, wrong, because this kind of asset passes with no estate taxes, so the kids get the whole $70,000 instead of only getting 45% of it after Uncle Sam takes his 55% cut. Uh, the charity, of course, receives now the entire farm because they have a remainder interest in the entire property. So I'm using an extreme example here, using the top marginal tax rates, to sort of point out the potential for a relatively straightforward technique um, uh, that, uh, the, uh, of this. Um, you know, irrevocable life insurance trusts are, are fairly standard uh, items, don't require a lot of cost of drafting. 
um, uh, remainder interest, uh, uh, remainder deed wouldn't cost that much in terms of complexity of drafting. So relatively straightforward. And what you're getting is a big difference between no planning and planning, where the kids actually wind up better off. The charity obviously winds up a whole lot better off uh, because of the way that these assets are being shifted from taxable assets to non-taxable. Yeah. What if you were to give the charity both on the left-hand side, the irrevocable life insurance trust and the other one? Do you get a deduction for the seventy thousand for the <coughs> Okay. So the question is, well, what if you just gave everything to the charity on the left-hand side? Would you give? A, would you get a, a seventy thousand uh, dollar deduction? Uh, from the uh, from the islet charity. Well, a couple things to keep in mind here. The reason that we want to use an islet is because if you use an islet, then that property, that money that's in the islet, passes with no estate taxes. Okay. If we're giving something at death to a charity, it passes with no estate taxes anyway. So we don't really care whether it's in uh, you know whether it's protected or not protected, going to be taxed. It's not going to be taxed because it's going to a charity. So you would actually never use tax-protected money to give to a charity unless you were going to give your entire estate to a charity. In fact, there's some states you're not even allowed to do that. There's more main statutes that prohibit, prohibit that. But, uh, so, so you wouldn't use this technique if everything was going to a charity. You wouldn't run it through that. Now, so the question is, well, what if I just want to take my tax deduction and buy some insurance that pays to the charity. Can, can I do that? Uh, sure, you can do that. So you could uh, take your uh, $24,841 cash back and you could give it. You give it to, you know, you could write a check to them and you could deduct that. Uh, and there are ways you could use life insurance where you could purchase a life insurance policy uh, or have the charity purchase a life insurance policy that you fund with, uh, with this money uh, if you decide to do that. So yes, you, you could do everything on the left-hand side directly to the charity, uh, although in that case, uh, you wouldn't need to use a, a, an eyelid or anything like that because it's already tax-free because it's going to the charity. So you would, uh, you would get a... Um, uh, so, so the long... Uh, the, the short answer is, yes, if you gave everything to a charity, you would get a deduction for that. Could you talk about the yeah, so the question is, uh, can this be a, uh, just a public charity or does it have, uh, could it be a private foundation? Uh, and it, it, um, uh, you can do it with either one, but uh, the issue is uh, if you give a remainder interest in farmland to a private foundation, then we go back to valuing our uh, property interests. And if it's, it's long-term capital that's appreciated, gone up in value, uh, we wouldn't want to do that because um, it's, uh, we're going to have to value it at our cost basis rather than the fair market value. And so we have that exception where if we were doing that with publicly traded stock and it was going to a private foundation, then we get fair market value. But um, uh, in, in this case, uh, because we're dealing with appreciated property uh, that is not, that's long-term capital gain property that is not stock, um, then we would only be able to deduct the, the cost basis. So you wouldn't want to do that with a private charity, with a, well, a private foundation, I should say, yeah, because, of, because of that, that issue. Okay. All right, so this is the kind of transaction I'm going to ask you to think up and imagine and create a scenario where you're doing this kind of deal. <coughs> Except, of course, this is way too easy for you, so we want you to do one with 
a house, not a farm, because houses are much more complicated to value. But you're going to need a lot of brain power to get through this, so we're going to take a break now and come back and learn about how do we value a gift of a, a remainder interest in a home. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about how to do this, and then we'll get into some other things. Um, okay, so we already know this. You can give remainder interest in personal residence. We know this from last time. It includes second homes, vacation homes, even a boat with a bathroom, cooking, sleeping facilities, if it's used by the donor as a residence. Now we're going to get into this issue. And this was the same issue that somebody asked last week about, well, how do I value a boat? The thing may not even be there by the time I, I, I've died. Uh, and this is the issue we're dealing with here, which is a deduction for a house or a boat, if you live on it part of the year, is reduced because, unlike land, it's depreciable. It wears out. Now, let's take an example, and then we'll look at how we got to that example to compare farmland, 100,000, with a uh, house, 100,000. And I just want to keep the percentages simple, so I'm using 100,000. We already know how to do this. We've already done this. Remainder interest, $100,000 of a farm. Use, we get our interest, or our percentage, uh, and we multiply it by 100,000. Boom, there we go. We have the deduction. Very nice. Now, when we're looking at remainder interest in a home, we've got to separate things that are depreciable, that is, things that decay, that fall apart over time, and things that don't. The things that don't fall apart over time, we treat them just like the farmland. Okay? We don't have to worry about depreciation. So, the home, let's say it's a single-family residence, probably sits on some land. If it sits on some land, then the part of the value of the home that is from the lot that it sits on, um, that part doesn't get depreciated. So we treat it just like we do the farmland, same way. There's also this really odd concept uh, that I, it's, uh, to, to my mind, fairly unusual, but it is this concept that's used in this valuation of the salvage value of a house. Now, what's that? Well, I think the idea is, even if the whole thing fell down, you know, you can sell the wood, you can uh, rip the uh, electrical wiring out and sell the copper, you can, you know, sell that sort of idea, salvage value uh, of a home. And the, and the idea is that part doesn't go away. Even if it gets old and decayed and whatever, you still have something there, some core value that never goes away. Uh, and so, uh, so you have this salvage value. Now, now, how in the world do you get a salvage value? You got to go get an appraiser that says, okay, what's salvage value? All right, that's, yeah, all right. It's uh, 10%, probably a good number on that. It's not very much, okay salvage value. Uh, it doesn't depreciate. Everything else uh, is the sort of structure part, and that part can wear out. And because it wears out, we use a different percentage rate for our deduction, a different ratio, percentage rate, whatever you want to call that, and that percentage is going to be lower than the percentage of the farm. Why is it going to be lower? Because this thing wears out. So by the time I've, I'm dead, uh, it's going to be worn out, whereas the land isn't going to be worn out. Yeah. So the appraiser is the one who determines what percentage, like in this case, twenty ten seventy, that each one goes to. Twenty ten land, ten percent salvage, seventy percent 
Yes. So the question is, is the appraiser is the one that decides how much of this house is value of this house is in the land and how much of it is in salvage and how much of it is in the, the structure. Yes, it's the appraiser that, that would, you would need to get that evidence to, to prove that. Um, and it's interesting that they consider it uh, wearing out since usually real estate goes up in value. Yes. Real estate does normally go up in value, but we, uh, we value this as if it is gradually falling apart and will, after a certain number of years, simply implode. That's the way that it's valued. Interesting. Okay. So just to apply that real fast, if yep. I had a large lot, tiny house, yes. the number may be flipped, the land could be 70%. Sure. Okay. In which case you're probably giving a remainder interest in a farm and, and a residence once it gets to be a, 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 you know, a large amount. If you're that. giving a residence away, does, uh, does that rule about how, like, if I if I set this up and I'm I guess if I'm 60 I could look the gift might not get to them until I'm 85. Right. Just so like it might be a while. Oh yeah, yeah. So, maybe a while. Interesting. So from my point of uh -huh. view, it could be better for me to do this later when the house is worth more because it's depreciation stuff. Depends if you keep it up or not. Yeah, so the question is, uh, uh, it might be better for me to wait on this. Um, and the truth of the matter is, uh, every year you wait, if the house is worth more, your deduction's bigger. If you're older, your deduction's bigger. Unless you're in a crazy time like we are right now, in which you see a 2% uh, interest rate, and because we're in that time, I would suggest forget all that. Just do it now because you're never going to see a 2% a, a interest rate again for your valuation. But, but normally you could you continue to wait because each year, you know, that's sort of the positive nature of this class. Each year you're closer to death. You're one year closer to death than you were the year before. And, and so that makes your remainder interest deduction much greater because the charity can get it faster. Isn't that great? Yeah. You also have to counteract it with what what income deduction can you actually realize in the next five years. Mm -hmm. So the longer you wait, your your income tax deduction may be larger, but you have to wait for it. Well, yeah, and, and your income may be less. Like that. I, you may not be uh -huh. having a, you might, might not have as much income to worry about right. offsetting with a deduction at age eighty-five. Uh -huh. That's a good point. That maybe that deduction is worth <laughs> more to me now because not only do I get the money now, the cash back from the IRS, but I actually have the income. That I can use it, yeah. which I might not have later. Yeah. So, is, how does this information get to all the farmers who are going to do this? <laughs> uh, that is through people who uh, become certified financial planners and they give advice to non-professionals on their financial uh, uh, mechanisms. Those certified financial planners that have their charitable income designation. Well, and to tell you the truth, I'm going to tell you the real honest to goodness why this technique isn't used very much. I'll tell you why it's not used very much, okay? Because financial planners, financial advisors don't know about it. Lawyers know about it. If you come to me as an estate planning lawyer, I ain't going to suggest this because I'll starve to death if I suggest things like this, because this is a remainder interest is me writing out a deed that takes me 15 minutes, okay? If I suggest a charitable remainder trust, which then we can talk about all the rules you want to put on and all that, 
then we can get into something that keeps me from starving to death because I got to do a lot of drafting for it. So that's one of the reason I think these techniques are underutilized is who has the information about suggesting them uh, and uh, sort of what's the, you know, that's kind of a jaded approach to things. But um, I've done a lot of estate planning and I don't remember sort of this coming up as something that ought to be done in a particular case. And, you know, maybe I was subconsciously dealing with the fact that I can write a remainder deed pretty quickly uh, as opposed to creating a charitable remainder trust. Putting the commission on that life insurance policy feeding that eyelid to be like 20 grand. That's, but I don't have a, a life insurance uh, uh, license. And so that's not how I think. And that's why I'm saying, that's what I'm trying to do here is to get this information to people that have these life insurance licenses and go, oh, you mean we could skip all that? We just do this in the street. Oh yeah, this sounds cool and this is simpler and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So there, there is the money there, but in this transaction, the money is not in the drafting. The, the money's in the, uh, in the insurance policy. Because ILITS, you can, I mean, it's such a standard document, you don't really charge that much. Well, I mean, you normally don't charge that much to, 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 to do the drafting on them. Okay. So now we need to figure out, where'd this number come from? All right. You asked. Okay. Just, just kind of breathe for a moment. This is actually just subtraction and division, but I wanted to show you all on one slide where you get it from. Okay, There's this thing, R factor, the age now, the R factor, the age after the useful life of the house, a D factor age now, and the useful life of the house. Okay, where do we get those numbers from? Fortunately, all of them but one are provided. Which one is not provided is this one, the useful life of the house. Where do we get that number from? You can get it from an appraiser, from a structural engineer, somebody who's qualified to say, um, useful life of this house is blah, blah, blah. Or you could say, look, we got two examples from the IRS in their literature and they say how to do this. Both of them use 45 years. So use 45 years. It's not likely that they're going to consider it to be abusive when you use their number from their example. It's not law, but it's what their example was. Now, obviously, if you got something that's about ready to fall down, then it would be abusive to call it 45 years. But the suggestion is, look, they've used that number in their examples, so I'm not going to go to jail for using their number. Okay? Or you can get an appraiser to estimate it. Or, I mean, if you wanted to be particularly generous, you could use the IRS tables for rental residential uh, property, uh, which I think is 37 and a half years. They're actually, the reason why this is higher is because there are no depreciation schedules for uh, non-rental residential property because you can't appreciate it. The only depreciation schedule that exists is for rental residential property, 37 and a half years. So I would kind of use that as a floor, okay? Like if you got an appraiser that came back and said 30 years, I would just now let's just <laughs> let's just go with the uh, uh, with the depreciation schedule for rental housing because that's an IRS number. Um, this is sort of an informal IRS number, so somewhere between those two numbers is is you're in safe land. Below that, it's uh, you don't want to do that, and above that, it could get risky. Okay, so this is the only number we're not provided with. We're going to use the IRS example of 45 years. Okay. So what goes in here? 
uh, assuming it's a relative, you know, let's say it's a new house or it's in good condition house, I'm going to use the 45 years. I put the number 45 right there. Now, how do I get the rest of the numbers? Well, um, I, uh, do I have that on that? No, I don't. So, it's a website, address, okay, um, table C. So I go to that address and I say, okay, I need table C. And so I click on table C, it gives you an Excel spreadsheet. Okay. Spreadsheet looks just like that last spreadsheet we looked at. You got to scroll down to get to the one at your current interest rate. And we're using 2.4% for September. You use 2% uh, if you were doing October. Okay. So you scroll down to that interest rate and it's the exact same thing in terms of process. Process is we find the interest rate. We find the age, and then we plug in the numbers. And what numbers do we plug in? Um, R factor of the current age, what's that? R factors, D factors. We're not going to get it. What's that? What does the R and the D stand for? I don't know. Okay. It's some actuarial thing. Okay. Sounds vaguely political. Yeah, there we go. It's <laughs> vaguely political. That's good. So this is some big number. You put it in up there, the D factor, some big number, 21,825, you put it in there. And then we've got to have one other number, which is the R number after the useful life of the house, the person's age after the useful life of the house. So age 59 plus 45 years, that is 103. That's the age that you would be at when it is when it implodes, essentially, when there's nothing left but the salvage value of the house. And so we look at the R number, R factor for that, we plug it in there, and that's how you get... So you, does that drop from 103 to 104 from 60 to 30? No, I just truncated the table. That's what the little dot, dot, dot means here. That means I've truncated the table so you can see it. What? Uh -huh. drops from 60 to 39. Oh, the R factor. Oh, the R factor. Oh, right, right. Yeah, it drops that much. Yeah, because you're, you're essentially dead here. You know, I mean, 103. It's like happen any week. So, um, of, course, of course, it could happen that way to anybody, but, you know. Oh, you're saying this this uh, 60 versus a 33 here? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, actually, no, because you're subtracting this from 263,478. So who, who really cares? <laughs> if that helps. Yeah, okay. So yeah, I mean, percentage-wise, that's huge, but you're subtracting it from a quarter million, so whatever. Yeah, okay. Now, you find that table, you plug in those numbers, and you put that in the calculator, and it comes out with 0.26821. Now, what's that number? That's the number that we subtract from the number we got from the, uh, uh, see, that's the number we subtract from this number we used at the land. That's our, uh, that's how much less it is because it's depreciation. Okay. So we, do this big nasty thing, we get this number, we come back here and we subtract that number from this 
you know, from this number that we're using for farmland or the salvage value, the land value, we subtract it from that, and that's how we get that number. So it's actually, I mean, the most complicated thing in there is division. It's not mathematically complicated. It's just you got to click on this link or type it in. I would click on it, you know, uh, block and copy it. I've posted these as PowerPoint, so you can do that. Click on Table C, gives you the Excel spreadsheet. Scroll down till you get to the one for interest rate 2.4. Find whatever age and don't use 59. Okay, so I want you to do this yourself. Don't use the same table, right? Use some other age. And uh, everybody's going to do 58 and then, oh, no, I'll do, yeah, no. Actually, I made it so you couldn't do that if you use 45 years because then you're off. You have to find it yourself. That's what I want you to do. Find it yourself. And uh, plug in those numbers get the number, and of course, like if this number comes out to be 14, then you know you did it wrong, right? Because you subtract it from this, uh, this ratio that you're doing here. It's how much your percentage goes down, the percentage of the value you can take, how much that percentage goes down because you're dealing with depreciated property. That's what this number is, okay? Yes? So going back to uh, price, mm -hmm. when we're doing the, the assignment, we yes. have to divide it into the land, Yes, knowledge. yes. From this, because yeah, from this this percentage, this in this case it's sixty percent point five eight nine. So instead of getting to take sixty percent of the value of the land, uh, uh, value of the house, you only get to take say thirty three point seven percent of the value of the house because you've had to subtract this point uh, two six eight two one, which is what you get down here point two six one. So yeah, so it's this number which is. We, got, we learned how to get that from when you were doing the farmland. Um, and you subtract this number, which is from this nasty thing. <laughs> so if there were to be a parenthesis next to the 70,000, would it say house, land, salvage house? Yeah. I had something next to it, but it was really long, and it made my slide look ugly. And so I'd rather you be stupid than my slides look <laughs> ugly, so I just took it off. Um, Is it okay yeah, what did I put? I couldn't say house because it's the non-salvage part, the depreciable part of the re of the structure. Right. But that wouldn't fit in there unless I did like eight point font. House minus copper wires minus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, in our example, do you want us to use five years, or can we turn around and say, well, according to our appraisal, our useful life is going to be thirty years? You could. Thirty years would give us a significant better deduction. It would give you a significantly worse deduction. So, so think about this, because the question was, hey, in my example, can I just say the house is going to decay in thirty years instead of forty-five? Because that'll give me a better deduction. Well, now, wait a second. What we're valuing is the value of this house when we die. Okay. If this house is going to fall down tomorrow, the value when I die is going to be just the land. If this house is going to last for 200 years, then the value of it is much higher, the value of it when I die. You see what I'm saying? So the, the reason that this, is, this, this percentage is so much higher is because this never decays. Okay? So the faster something decays, the, the lower this number is going to be. So you're always going to want to push for a longer life 
for the house because what you're trying to value is, what you're trying to say is how much is it going to be worth 30 years from now? No, if you go back to your calculation, mm -hmm. okay, let, and let's just use these numbers. Okay. 59, and let's say that when we came down to year 89, uh -huh. which you don't have, that it would probably be somewhere, oh, $1,000, let's say. Yeah. But then your $1,000 times your 30 years, you're, you're saying that it's, it's just something I guess I need to go Yeah, so, so the deal is is that the number here is, um, yeah, well, I don't get... Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I can... The explanation's can right. One, so. <laughs> you can play with the numbers, but that's the theory behind it, and okay. so that's why uh, you want to... It, it's the opposite, because normally in income tax law, you're pushing for the shortest depreciation period. And, and here, because... We're trying to say, no, it's going to be worth a lot, you know, in 30 years. We're trying to push for the longest depreciation. And we're depreciating a personal residence, which has no IRS rule on the depreciation time period. Okay. What if you had, for example, a ski condo, okay? Right. And you used it one month a year, and the rest of the time it was rented. Right. Okay, so that you... So that it is your personal residence, but you're also depreciating. <clears throat> right. Do you think you'd have to use the same useful life? Yeah, so the question is, if you have in your income taxes um, depreciated piece of uh, real estate or piece of property using a particular schedule, can you then, for this calculation, go and use another schedule? And I'd say no. I'd say once you commit yourself saying it's 37 and a half years, um, you can't then say, but for these purposes, it's going to last longer. That would be my inclination. Now, you could make an argument otherwise that says, well, no, then it was being valued as rental, but here it's being valued as personal, and we don't have a valuation for personal, so I can use 45. And, I mean, it wouldn't be fraud to say 45, uh, and, you, and you may very well even, you know, you might even win that. Uh, you it, might be using accelerated depreciation on the other part. Well, that's true. If you're using accelerated depreciation, though, um, you wouldn't take that because accelerated depreciation is accelerated. It's not the useful life of the house. And, you know, so that's the, I mean, that's the term that's used here is useful life of house. Accelerated depreciation doesn't tell you anything about the useful life of your item. So. And wouldn't you have to back that depreciation out of your deduction somehow that you'd taken? Yeah, because, uh, because that gets back to the same concept of, and, and here we're sort of starting to stack concepts, which is good, but it gets complicated, which was our property valuation concept. Remember, fair market value always meant after you subtracted the uh, depreciation that you've taken. And it would be the same case here. Uh, when we started with our fair market value, you know, our $100,000 home, well, it's not a $100,000 home because of we've got to subtract the depreciation we've already taken. Otherwise, we'll be deducting it twice. So if it was worth $100,000, but we actually for a while had rented it out and we depreciated it down, uh, uh, depreciated $20,000 out of it, then it would actually be an $80,000 home if we start combining the, those things. Yeah. So this is sort of why your question about are we going to deal with this stuff earlier, yeah. it, it just stacks. Yeah, it, it, it stacks together in these transactions. Okay? All right. Any other questions about this, this part? Again, don't freak out. You just got to find the table and it's subtraction and a division, one division. Okay? But I sort of felt bad 
last week when we got to that. I'm like, oh, well, that's complicated. I'm like, yeah, but it's a grad class, you know. Got to do some complicated things. So we do that. And if you get stuck here, just email me. And I will uh, ignore you. But it will make you feel better. Okay. So what if the donor leaves? That is, okay, I've given the remainder interest in this house, and uh, the charity's going to own it, and I'm going to live here and use it, and then all of a sudden, Darren's like, I don't want to live here anymore. What do we do then? What, what, what are some possibilities at that point? There's actually a lot of different possibilities. Uh, and some of the things that a donor could do if they don't feel like living in the house anymore, uh, depending on how charitable they are or are not feeling. One is they could just give the rest of it to the charity. Say, you know, charity, you're going to have to wait till I die, but I, I don't want to live here anymore anyway. I'm just going to give you my life estate. That's my right to live here for the rest of my life. Give it to you. You can just sell the thing and take the whole value. Um, you could uh, rent the property out. You know, find a property management company to run the thing for you, rent it out, and go do whatever you're going to do and take the income off of it. You could do that. Uh, you could sell your life estate. You could find an investor or maybe a property management company, and, uh, uh, and you could say, here's the right to live in or rent this place uh, out for the rest of however long I live. Can you sell that? It has value. You can sell it. You could do a combination. You could agree with the charity to a joint sale and divide the proceeds. You could say, okay, charity, you're holding the remainder interest on this house. That means you get it when I die. Um, I want to leave, so how about we just get together. We'll have a sale. I'll kick in my life estate. You kick in your remainder interest, and we'll divide that up according to the, uh, according to the IRS uh, uh, tables, or at least not. Uh, to where I'm taking advantage of the charity <clears throat> and uh, you know, make a fair division of that. I'll take my money now, you'll take your money now, we're both happy. Sound reasonable? Most charities, well, of course, uh, happy to do that. Uh, or you could get even more complicated and try to involve another chapter that we haven't gotten to yet, and you give the life estate to the charity in exchange for a gift annuity, uh, where you're saying, here's the life estate, and the charity's giving you well, we haven't gotten into this, but basically it's, uh, it's an annual income back in, in exchange for that. So there's some different things you can do. Just some ideas to, to, to keep in mind. Yes, sir? So because of the income tax deductions, what, is there a time where it would ever not be profitable? Say if you want to leave, let's just say farm for easy uh -huh. use. If I want to leave a farm, is there any reason why I wouldn't want to, A, do a do a remainder trust to a charity for the deductions, and then B, rent it? Does that sound like more than just renting it? I mean... Uh, you lost me there. Okay. So, so I got the renting part. What are you going to do in addition to renting it? You're going to, you're going to also give it for deductions now. You're going to give it to a charity. The remainder... Oh, give the remainder interest for a charity. The remainder interest to the charity. And, okay, so now so I understand, so... Mm -hmm. Okay, he can just do that, just plain rent the farm. Mm -hmm. Or B, he can choose to give the remainder interest to a charity and rent the farm. Mm -hmm. So he gets deductions on his rental property, basically. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there a time where you would never, wouldn't want to do that? Okay, well, well, let's back up for a minute because, um, and this is a question I was talking with Angel about over the break. 
If you have a client who is interested in benefiting a charity, you can use these techniques to dramatically increase the amount that they can give to a charity or the cost, uh, decrease the cost of them giving the same amount of value to a charity. But it is, I'm going to say, always the case, and if it's not, then avoid the transaction because it's probably got something else wrong with it. It's always the case that I can get you more money without involving the charity. Okay. Uh, charitable planning is planning for people that want to benefit a charity. And we can use lots of techniques where we can create a lot of benefit, but I can, just as a general rule, I can always come up with a way that you can get more money, keep more money in your family uh, without using the charity. We can use life insurance trust without you know, having to, to, to involve the charity. I can sell uh, the whole farm. I can sell a remainder interest to the farm. And instead of just getting to deduct that amount where I get, say, 40% of it in cash or 30% of it in cash, I actually get the whole thing in cash. Because oh, okay. I can, you know, you see what I'm saying? You can actually just sell your remainder interest. You could, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, normally what you would do is just to sell the whole farm and then put it in something that gives you an annual income. Um, but you could, certainly. Um, you can, you can uh, uh, it, it has value. You can sell it and you can get more money out of it than just the uh, deduction value, most likely. The key there is in ascertaining whether your client is charitable minded. Yes. They may not ever, I mean, they may not know the possibilities that lie out there, so they may never mention a charity mm -hmm. because they don't know the possibilities. So if, just because they've never mentioned it or whatever doesn't mean that they're not charitable minded. Right. And, and this is an area that, you know, if I have any sort of campaign among financial planners, it's, it's that area. Because if I can get financial planners educated enough with a few of these techniques, they're going to realize that I need to know whether they're charitably inclined or not. Because if you, you know, I mean, just the straightforward idea that if I do an estate plan and I ask them, do you want to leave anything to charity? and they say, yeah, I'd like to leave, whatever, 10% or a chunk or whatever, then I have this information that I could come back to them at whatever point and say, you know, if you decided to commit some farmland or your house, you know, it was part of your estate, um, if, if that chunk that you would commit that you want that to go to charity after you die, I'd get you a tax deduction right now for that. And like, give me a tax deduction right now even though... It doesn't transfer till after I die, you know. That's the sort of conversation that can't happen if you don't know this and if you don't know whether they have charitable interests or not. And even in those lifestyle when you're getting to know your client, if they go down and volunteer at a soup kitchen sure. once a week or whatever, then sure. it it can escalate into this. Right. <coughs> but unless you know your client it might. Yep. And it's all probably you definitely it's gonna I'm thinking you want a client that's making pretty decent money. If, if the client is, um, you know, making say fifty thousand a year, these kind of things aren't really going to. Well, now see, here's where I would disagree with some of these simple techniques. Let's say I've got somebody making fifty thousand dollars a year. I've done their simple will. Their will says I want to leave, you know, ten percent of my estate uh, to charity. Okay, or twenty percent of my estate. 
and 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 the estates three hundred thousand. All right, let's make it let's make it five hundred thousand. They want to leave twenty percent of their estate to charity. Okay, I say, um, you got this farmland out there that you're leasing out because not a farmer, but you're leasing out this farmland. It's worth about a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And in your charitable plan right now, you want to, if you die, about $100,000 is going to go to, you know, your church, right? Yeah, that's what I have. Well, if you want to commit to that right now, to say that farmland goes to the church, um, I can get you a tax deduction right now uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, what do we say, uh, if it's worth, you know, 50 uh, yeah, sixty-five thousand dollars, or if it's a fifty thousand, yeah, um, I can get you a sixty-five thousand dollars tax deduction that you can use. Um, uh, you know, you can't wipe out your whole income, but you could pay no income taxes for the next couple of years. You think a client making fifty thousand dollars a year? When I say pay no income taxes, pay pay less than half because you're a different marginal rate. You know, I can cut your tax bill more in half uh, than in half if you decide you want to commit to this. Now, it's a commitment. It's not like a will where you can change your mind. But, you know, if the client's like, oh, no, I've been there for 45 years. You know, I'm going to change my mind on that. And, you know, da, da, da. Well, if you want to commit to this, we can get you tax deduction right now. They're not in an estate tax situation. They're paying, you know, 25% income tax marginal rate. It's a huge chunk of money that you can give to them simply by knowing that they have that desire to do it. Now, I wouldn't try to sell it to a client that didn't have a desire to leave something to charity in the, in the first place. Most clients actually, uh, more clients have that desire than is reflected in the plan because it's not a question that's specifically asked of them during the planning process often. And you just made your, uh, made your wages by, by, by providing that oh, yeah. to your client. I mean, you more than paid for whatever services you're yeah. is, is, is there any, like, like if they chose that year to convert part of their IRA to a Roth IRA and recognizing income uh-huh. that. Uh, there's, there's no restriction. Right. And, yeah, and, and so this is something that, um, you know, it's kind of because we're in this window now where you can make these big conversions of, of regular IRAs to Roth IRAs, all of a sudden people, for that reason, who are already charitably inclined, are getting real interested in some of these kind of charitable transactions because they now have a massive amount of income from this conversion to offset. So this is the perfect kind of thing that says, you're going to have this huge chunk of income. Well, great, because we can generate a huge deduction, and you can use it all right now uh, at this really high you know, marginal tax rate because you're trying to convert everything over into, a, over into a Roth. But it generates this massive income. That's the kind of income situation where you really want to look for, what can I do now to generate big tax deductions now? These kinds of things... Um, can do that. Now, more more com- complex versions of them are like charitable remainder trust, but this is the poor man's charitable remainder trust. <laughs> All it takes is a deed if you own farmland or a house, and that's and you're okay that that's the asset that's going to go to charity. So, you know, so part of the point is that you can provide big value to moderate income donor, uh, moderate income clients who have a charitable interest. With that, in that same scenario, mm-hmm. <clears throat> can you can we look at how the well, I mean the one that we talked about the fifty thousand dollars yeah if they have <clears throat> the wine glasses how do the wine glasses look for uh, <clears throat> somebody like that 
Well, um, it, so we're talking about here, this is uh, appreciated property, assuming they give it to a public charity. So, uh, and we want to va value it at fair market value, so that's a 30% of, uh, of their uh, income. Uh, that uh, it, so they can deduct thirty percent of their income unless we're deduct you know unless we want to so take that special election right thirty okay. well of their AGI so if we're talking fifty thousand AGI so so they, then their AGI is going to be like forty five thousand uh, thirty five thousand oh yeah thirty five thousand taxable right so you've dropped them from fifty thousand to thirty five thousand taxable income for as long as that money lasts but you can carry over for up to five years. Carry over for up to five years. Which actually works out pretty close to it. Yeah, yes. in that particular case. Great example. Yeah. yeah. Well, five years times the 15000 per year would be Yeah. Okay. All right, let's finish up this section. Uh, we've done that. Uh, what about this issue? Will the donor maintain the property? I've already got my tax deduction. Why do I care if the thing falls down or not? I, I don't. I, I don't, my family doesn't keep it, you know. Um, there's actually some rules for that. Uh, and there are two sources of the rules. One is common law. As I mentioned last week, this idea of a remainder interest with a, a life estate, very old concept in the law. And so over time, some principles have arisen uh, through court decisions uh, that say that the life tenant, that's the person who's in it until they die or for a period of years, has to uh, maintain, insure, and pay taxes on the property. Uh, if they don't, the remainder holder can uh, force them to or can uh, sue them for the cost of doing those things. Um, so basically it is their responsibility and it is a, it's an enforceable responsibility. Now many charities uh, have gone to a situation where they will also, uh, in addition to this, will they will request or require a, um, a uh, maintenance insurance and taxes MIT contract that specifically says, okay, you're going to do this, you'll take care of this, you'll keep it insured, you'll do those things, just so everybody uh, uh, agrees with it. Um, it is possible for a charity to refuse a gift, although you could always find another one that would say, I don't care, even it's falling down, I'll sell the land after you die, you know. Um, but some will... That's why, you know, require, encourage this kind of contract. Um, charity benefits even if it looks like that because they can sell the land. But, yeah. okay. Uh, well, what about the opposite? What if I give a remainder interest in my home and then I decide I'd really like to upgrade this place? Maybe add on a bedroom or uh, um, make some improvements to the house. Can I get more tax deductions when I make improvements to the place? Yes, you can. You can deduct the remainder value of major improvements as an additional gift. So for example, if you put in a brand new uh, HVAC system, it's an example used in some private letter rulings, um, you can say, now if it costs 8000 you don't get to deduct the whole 8000 but we go back through that remainder calculation again and say, what's the remainder value of this improvement to the property? And I get to deduct that remainder value of the improvement to the property. Right? So I can do so that. Would that then be treated similar to the house where there'd be a salvage value and a non-salvage? Yeah, it's because it's a depreciable item. Because improvements can't be non-depreciable. So 
So, so then would you have to like, get an appraisal on this to figure out what the salvage value of this would be? And the, or do you just use or the patient? Well, you don't have to get an appraisal value on the overall value. Um, you could do, take one of two approaches. One, you could just say, well, we'll just appreciate the whole thing. Yeah. The other is you could say, use a low number like 10%, and then the IRS isn't going to scream at that. You know? um, or, you know, it's probably not worth it to go get an appraiser that knows HVAC systems and say, what's the salvage value in... 30.2 years, and mm, uh, okay, you know, it may be dealing with not enough dollars to fool with it um, that way. Okay, all right. So that's, um, that's how I wanted to do that section initially. Yes, sir? So you don't just...